Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. I'm Joe Haddow and wherever you are in the world, it's great to have you with us. If it's your first time listening to Book Off, well, we hope you enjoy it and that you'll want to check out some of our previous episodes, which include guests such as David Tennant, Richard Osman, Simon Mayo, Maggie O'Farrell, Michael Connolly, Kate Moss, Anthony Horowitz, Ian Rankin, Candice Carty-Williams, David Mitchell, Lem Sisse, Katie Brand, Douglas Stewart, Jackie Gay and Brett Anderson, to name just a few. Now today, I'm joined by TV and radio royalty, who have both, both been stars of Strictly Come Dancing. My first guest is a journalist, radio presenter, TV host and author. He can be seen weekday mornings on Channel 5 from 9.15 and heard every weekday on Radio 2 between 12 and 2pm. And that show holds a very special place in my heart as working on it was my first ever job in radio. Ah. I have no idea how he finds time to write two non-fiction books, let alone a novel, but we'll find out today. Jeremy Vine, welcome to you. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. It's 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 brilliant to be here and to see you again, because I think the last time we worked together, we were doing a, a thing on slam, slam poetry. Slam poetry. We were actually well remembered. Yeah. In a poetry club somewhere in North London. And yeah. it's lo- lovely to see you. And, and I've been outshirted already, I see. But um, <laughs> never mind. Never mind. Uh, and my second guest is a TV presenter, actor and the number one Sunday Times bestselling author of nine novels, all set in beautiful Cornwall. Known to millions for hosting this morning, she also spent more than a decade in a newsroom, managed a theatre, and more recently has turned her hand to acting in the hit show Calendar Girls. Here to talk (laughs) about her latest novel, Daughters of Cornwall, it's for Britain. Hello to you. Hello, how are you? I'm really well and all the better for having you both here. And how do we find Cornwall today, Fern? Ah, Cornwall today is the sort of day where... It's nice and sunny, and when you sit down on a cushion outside, the cushion is warm on your bottom. And that's a good day. <laughs> that's a, sounds like a great day, yeah. Yeah. And we're at the end of the we at the end of the week to Friday afternoon recording this. How are you doing, Jeremy, after your ten shows? You feeling all right? Is it ten? Yeah, it is ten, isn't it? Yeah, because I, I, I mean, you know, it's amazing. I had um, a show today where we discussed the new kind of petrol, which doesn't work in cars before 2011 and then it turns out that it doesn't work in classic cars so now anyone who's got a car older than 10 years old can call it a classic car that's the upside and then on the other hand I spoke to a woman called Sarah Adams who I've spoken to before as part of my uh, series I did on on mums who lost their sons in Afghanistan and she was talking about what she sees now she looks over at that country so I thought it's all and Fern knows this the range that's the key word I think in in broadcast journalism if you're not doing a news bulletin if you're doing the kind of shows that Fern and I've done the range is incredible you know from things that stop you and make you think for the rest of your life to things that are utterly utterly silly you know is a wooden wooden chopping board better than a plastic chopping board all that kind of and I do at 56 I still love it I must I just I just love I'm so lucky to do what I do yeah <laughs> yeah I get that yeah and it's so much so that you one of your books was about that Jeremy right it was about the your callers essentially yeah, the guy who rings up during Brexit, 92 years old, veteran of, of D-Day, and says that clearly negotiations with Brussels are not going well. It's time to send in the SAS. And I think, you know, the, the wisdom of crowds. 
But actually, I must say, having said that, I always I thought when I when I got to Radio Two, ah, oh, I now understand everything because Newsnight and and the Today program and all that, which I had worked on, were all about telling people what was happening, and we knew and they didn't. Then Radio Two arrived, and it was that that they know and we don't, and the audience tell us. And now we've had COVID. I'm thinking oh, I've got to rethink that because we are slightly in the hands of experts now. I can't. I'm not a medic. I've got in the end. I'm going to have to follow the advice. So I'm really conflicted at the moment. I'm trying to sort, sort myself out, work out what's going on. <laughs> we all are. I think we're all in that boat. <laughs> um, and for, let's, talk about, uh, let's talk about your latest novel. In fact, both your latest novels. Daughters of Cornwall is your latest book. And am I right in thinking this was inspired by a letter? Yes, absolutely. Uh, back in the 1980s, when I first started in television as obviously a child, um, it, I was—I had a letter sent to me from a man who had been down in Cornwall on holiday and had seen me on television. And he wrote to me when he got home to say, oh, hello, is your mother, la la la, gave her name. And um, because I think I, I know her and is her mother, la la la, gave her my grandmother's name. He gave me her, my grandmother's name. And so I wrote back and I said, yes, that's right. You know, how do you know them? And he went, the return letter, because no email then, um, said, well, this may come as a shock, but your mother is my sister and your grandmother is my mother. And my grandmother had had him during the First World War and she found herself pregnant. We don't know who by, but I think it was possibly a man who was the older brother of the man she did marry in the end, my grandmother, my grandfather. Um, so she had this baby in secret. Nobody knew she'd had him. She gave him to a couple on a sort of private adoption premise. And she would write to him and write to the foster parents and send him money and letters and photos. And when she was in the UK, because when she got married to my grandfather, they moved to Malaya and uh, they were in Penang. And the, the reason I think that my grandfather is the brother of the man who fathered my uncle, this is complicated, isn't it? Um, he had a rubber, rubber plantation, but when he died, my grandfather and grandmother moved over there to look after the rubber plantations. That's why I think that's the connection. But anyway, this this lovely man, my uncle, uh, he said, I said, well, before I tell my mother, you must send me proof. You know, not just some nutcase saying, I'm your yeah. uncle. Um, and he did. He sent me photographs of him on the beach as a tiny boy with my grandmother, letters from her in her own hand, which I recognised, and mm. um, very sorrowful. And But when she did marry my grandfather, everything stopped. All communication stopped. And then after the Second World War, my uncle came to find her, and she was running a boarding house by then in Western Souvenir with her two sons and daughter, who had no idea that she'd had this earlier son. And he, he knocked on the door and she went to answer it and she went white and said to her, my uncle, her eldest son, supposedly, uh, get rid of this person, get rid of him. And my uncle had to stay at the door and say, go, go away, go away. So brother against brother. I mean, it's it. It's an extraordinary story. And when she died, when my grandmother died, she did say on her deathbed, um, I've been a wicked woman and nobody knew why. Wow. Uh, so it's terribly sad. So I really wanted to write it as a testament to my mother and my uncles who are no longer with us anymore, any of them. Um, mm -hmm. And also my grandmother, because she was being, she was a, a hero and she was a goddess in my eyes. And there's no yeah. reason why we shouldn't, tell that story and feel enormous empathy and compassion absolutely um and it's a story that that spans uh, uh, three different time periods i, I want to come and talk about that <laughs> it's always the bit that you write it a saga spanning 30 yeah. decades two <laughs> exactly. world wars love and, uh, you know yeah yeah i could have written that blurb but anyway yeah yeah well, it's a great blurb, yeah. um, whoever did write it. Uh, so I, I want to come back and, and talk about that. And, and I know you did, obviously, a lot of research in into those time periods and uh, with the archives. Jeremy, for your novel, your first novel, this all starts with a painting, doesn't it? It does. And it's funny, in a way, it starts with eggheads and a question on, on my, my quiz show, Eggheads. And um, 
we filmed, I mean, yeah, firm will know this, these game shows, my goodness, you have to do blocks and you go a bit mad. And we were doing, I think, going for a record of 67 in 15 days with one day off in the middle. You're and joking. Was, yeah, yeah. Hang on, I'm just going to get and my calculator out here. It's about four <laughs> or five a day. I think it's four or five a day, yeah. 15. Um, go divided, on, go 67 on. 67 divided by 15. Divided by 15. Equals... Oh, no, that's not right. 4.6 or something? It was like 4545. Yeah, I want to find the answer actually now. 4.6 recurring. There we are. That's exactly it. So some days four, some days five. And and, the eggheads are, of course, they are the sitting panel of brilliant quizzes. And we had this question where it was, who invented the lobster telephone? And there was a little picture of this thing. And uh, I wasn't, they said Salvador Dali. I should have known that. And I said, oh, Dali, he's the one who does the melting clocks and the burning giraffes and all that, uh, which is, I remember posters on the wall at school and everything. I mean, everyone has seen those melting clocks. And they said, yeah, but there's a picture down the road from here, Jeremy. You've got to go and see it. One of his most famous. So because the middle day of that block of 67 is so precious, the one day off, the Saturday, I thought, I'll go and have a look at this painting. And it did kind of blow me away. It's called Christ of St. John of the Cross by Salvador Dali, and it's in the Kelvin Grove. And I stood there looking at it, and I, and I, and I kind of got into it. And as I did more and more eggheads, I used to always take my day off and always go to the Kelvin Grove and always look at this painting. And the story is based on the painting of it in 1951. And the fact that Dali, and this is what's really interesting, if, if you imagine this, this picture, it's, it's Christ on the cross, but it's, it's essentially, it, it's the view you'd get if you were sort of bombing down from space. Yeah, you've seen it, Fern, yeah. you know. It's an amazing, incredible perspective. The top of his head is, is a lot of the painting. And, and in order to paint it, it says in this tiny plaque on the wall, he, he used as a model a stuntman called Russell Saunders. Now, back in the day, stuntmen were seriously scared. They had, these jobs were scary. Some of them used to die. The, the stuntman for, for stagecoach, Yakima Canute, famously falls off the horses and goes under 12 horses and comes out the other end, survives. It's all in the movie. And Russell Saunders is a bit like that. So I was trying to, I was thinking, what is it like for this man? I bet he didn't really know much about Dali. He goes and, and he has to be hanged from a gantry in the ceiling of Dali's studio to create the effect that Dali needs. And I then, I got a bit, a little bit obsessed with this, this painting and I got all the photos and all the stuff on Russell Saunders I could get. And I've got all these photos of him on the beach at, you know, Muscle Beach as it was called in California. And he looks exactly like the figure in the painting, the same hair, the same muscle tone, the same body, everything. And I thought, what can I, what, what story could I tell? And my fiction is about two sisters who are traveling in Spain, two English sisters. And one of them has had a terrible nervous breakdown connected with events in the First World War, actually. So a crossing with, with Fern's story there. And um, she, one thing she understands is surreal art, which nobody was into at the time. And Dali gives her suddenly an understanding of reality. But the other sister falls in love with a waiter at a local hotel. Russell Saunders in my book storms out because he doesn't get what he's being asked to do. Dali asks the waiter to be the model ah. and disaster ensues. <laughs> That's it. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> That's it. Um, so he hangs him from the ceiling of his studio. There we are. There we are. But you know, the funny thing about that painting, and I, I can see Fern's eyes light up. You've obviously seen it. Um, is the guy, the guy who ran the Kelvin Grove then is a guy called Tom Honeyman. So back in the 50s, he had a lot of power. Um, but he could do his own thing. So he, had, he was obsessed with Dali and he decides to go over and buy this painting. And he got to see Dali and he said, what are you painting? Can I buy it? And Dali said, yeah, well, here is what I've got. Um, and you can have it for 10,000 10, pounds. Honeyman said, oh no, I can't pay that much, you know. So he knocked him down to 8,200 pounds, right? Uh, when he got back to Scotland, he's then involved in one of the first sort of political scandals where it emerges that he spent 8,200 pounds of the Kelvin Groves money on Spanish art. So, so the Scottish establishment go mad. The poor guy two years later loses his job. And now the painting is worth, what, 100 million, 200 million. It's one of the most important things in Scotland. It sends a shiver through you when you see it. And I always think of this lovely guy, Tom Honeyman. I wish you could see how vindicated he was. Do you know, here's a little question because this is the quizzer thing. Do you know why it's called Christ of St. John of the Cross, which is a really odd name? No, I don't. Tell me. In the 1500s, there was a monk in Spain called St. John of the Cross, and he was, he, was a, he was a real hardline guy. He wanted fasting, bare feet. He was known as the Discalced Friar, etc. And what he did, that, and he was, he was opposed by a lot of people, what he did that got him into trouble was he did a little pencil sketch the size of a post-it note of exactly the view you can see in Dali's painting. So it's Christ from above. 
And someone found it and they said that was a blasphemy because you're not allowed to see Christ from above, which is the view God has. And as a result, he was banged up and he died at 42 and he had a terrible time. So Dali is sort of doubling down on the blasphemy of, of, of St. John of the Cross, as he was Yeah, named. it is a beautiful picture, and it's a very good book, because you sent it to me and I read it. Oh, bless you. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, isn't it funny how, as I think as, as life goes on, you know, we maybe look further back. That's the thing, I think, that I start to realise oh, the sacrifice of people who died in the Somme. Oh, my God, I understand it now. I've got kids. Exactly. Exactly. And, to, you know, talking about Afghanistan and all those young people who are left there who want to come out. I don't know if you saw an interview this morning with a very nice man who had been a Syrian refugee and he'd come to the UK and he's been here for a long time. Uh, he lives in London. He feels like a Londoner. He's grateful to be here. He wanted to put something back into society during the pandemic. So he went to the hospitals and said, can I have a job there? Yes, they wanted cleaners. And he went and he cleaned the hospitals. He's also a photographer. He's a very clever photographer and filmmaker. He's just made a documentary as well. But um, he was talking about the Afghanistan refugees who are obviously displaced and arriving in different countries around the world and those who are left there. And um, the interviewer said to him, well, you know, all these refugees, I mean, people will say, um, well, it's nothing to do with us. And he said, well, it is something to do with us. You know, we've done this. We were the people who were there. And then we've just, and he said, oh, yes, yes, yes. But we went there because Afghanistan, you know, was a breeding ground for terrorists. And he went, and now we've just handed it to them on a silver plate. And, he, and it, it, those, you're talking about the Somme and, and mm. you know, the different warfares we have now, of course. This is exactly the same. Displaced people in deep danger and no one at the moment seems to be holding out a hand. Mm -hmm. They've done what they've said they're going to do and that seems to be about it. And that's more shocking to me than anything. And I think most of us are finding it very hard to look at the news at all at the moment. Yeah, Sorry, just like, throw that in as a downer. No, I mean, last time I was in Cornwall, I remember seeing, you know, in, in the gift shop that notice that says you break, you break it, you pay for it. And it is a bit like yeah. that, Afghanistan, isn't it? You know, I think um, yeah. we, we can't, you can't just say, I'm sorry about that and walk out the shop. No, it's a big, a big thing, and and it's you feel so helpless. You know, we're all thinking, have we got spare rooms? Can we do something here? Well, I do anyway. But it's so tricky. And I then... mean, in the end, should we? Have, oh, sorry, Joe, we're getting into you know full blown politics. But then I'm thinking, is the kite runner based in Afghanistan that I read and made me think? Yes. Oh, this is one of the greatest books ever. You know, and it's funny how so sad though. Yeah, oh, I but bear it. I know, I know. But maybe in the end, it's the writers and the artists and the books. You'll have an author on in a year's time, Joe, who's been mm. in Afghanistan. He'll sum the whole thing up, and that's that's how well, we, I hope so. we understand the story. It takes it takes a couple of decades to appreciate something that's happened like that. Yeah. And I think because of the news and how much we're hearing about these things, we're looking, people are looking to fiction that perhaps yeah. takes you away, that sort of escapist fiction. And it's interesting you saying, Jeremy, that you know you feel as you get older, you want to look back a bit more. Um, and firm with your book, as as we touched on, it's uh, <laughs> it's it spans this well just over a century, I think, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. Um, and was that obviously inspired by this by this letter and the family connection? I wondered how much of it is fiction and how much of real life you you put into it. I put an awful lot of reality in reality because. Um, my grandmother would tell me, although she was quite secretive about certain things, she would tell me incredible stories. My mother and my uncle were both in the Second World War. My uncle flew Lancasters and got a, a distinguished flying medal for it. And uh, my mother was a sergeant in the ATS and they had stories to tell me. So when I was growing up with all of that, I was born 12 years after the end of the Second World War, 1957. And um, my party piece, my mother would make me say, who won the war, darling? And I'd have to say, you did, mummy. And I actually <laughs> believed it when you're five, you know. And she had her uniform hanging up and she always has her medals. In fact, I've got some here. Oh, wow. These are her little medals when you're when you're going out for dinner. You don't <laughs> wear the big ones, but these are hers. <laughs> I remember, and my my grandfather, he, well, both grandfathers, they both fought in the First World War, and my mother's father, 
he was in the Second World War, he was in Malaya, as I said to you, and he was captured when Singapore fell and he was in Shangi for a long time. And my mother didn't know whether he was alive or dead. She wrote to him every week, not knowing if his letters were getting through. And he would have something like half a cup of water and a couple of spoonfuls of rice every day. And that was it. And he insisted that his men shaved, even though they were in a prisoner of war camp with the Japanese uh, and then drank the rest of the water. But he insisted they shaved, even though they had that much water. So uh, he had his toenails pulled out and he had a, what do you call it, the shrapnel in his calf and yeah, so I grew up around that and I grew up with people saying oh rather and all that sort of stuff and come along old fruit and uh, it, it was and I'm reading a book at the moment with with a character who uh, who signs off a letter saying tinkety tonk old fruit and down with Hitler <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> amazing yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you, you you've probably both seen Catastrophe, which is you know the brilliant Sharon yes. Horgan, Rob Delaney thing, and this is about this kind of difficult but lovely marriage between these two people. And she says, "Why are you always sitting on the loo reading books about Hitler?" And my wife says, "You're you're exactly the same." She says, "What what are you reading about the Second World War now?" You know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Extraordinary. I mean, my uncle when he was flying Lancasters. He got his DFM because he was over Germany, obviously, uh, bombing. And um, they, uh, they they fired at him and uh, they've got four engines, but he lost, he lost an engine, then he lost another one. And then they flew over the channel at about 100 foot and managed to land at um, Scampton. You know, I grew up with all of that sort of stuff. So it's very easy to recall um, talking about reading non-fiction and history and things on the loo or otherwise, was there a point where you thought about your book, Jeremy, that, that it could have been non-fiction or was it always going to be fiction, do you think? I do. I must say, love reading a good story. So, And, and I, I think it's strange because my job is news and facts. Uh, you know, I sort of feel if you're doing that in your playtime as well, it's, you, you must be overly serious. I also think you can get into a lot of danger. I mean, as long as you put fiction on the top of it, it could all be completely, in a way, it could be completely made up. I think it's a danger, actually, of having any real person in a fictional book. Because if I say Salvador Dali was six foot two, someone's going to say, no, he's not six foot three. And the, yeah. the amount of corrections that come in. So the, the extent to which you can you conversion reality is quite interesting. You can't have Salvador Dali dying in 1976 when he actually died in 1989. Um, yeah. But obviously, I think you can have the stuntman storming out of the, the gallery, I think. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Robert Harris, to drop a name with the author he's written a book called the second sleep which is which is i don't want to i mean in a way the spoiler is right at the start and i, I when i yeah I interviewed but it him, still takes you yeah. takes you a while to get it well though, doesn't it? so yeah. so there's i think we can talk about it because he when he talks at book festivals he certainly says this is what the book's about but essentially you think you're in the middle ages but it turns out you're in the future and he said the, the <laughs> within about two pages this guy in london says he's he's on a horse and he's got there's a parakeet in the tree right now everyone in london uh, i think knows that parakeets are very very recent so straight away someone fires an email to his publisher and says this book contains an appalling inaccuracy on page 2 right so the the person hasn't even read forwards to find out you're not in the middle ages <laughs> in the future and Robert said and Robert is somebody my goodness he he is somebody who really really wants to make sure his there's an authenticity about the history much more so than me but I think I think I would go 70% fiction with I'd, I'd love a I love the idea like Ferns it, that you have a backdrop that we can all understand because it's our shared history I love that mm. but I think um, the joy of making stuff up is wonderful <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I grew up as a journalist as well. I died 10 years in newsrooms, as you say, where you certainly learn how to not take um, offence personally. Because <laughs> 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 you're getting shouted at and bawled out all the time. And then at the end of the show, they were all having a pint in the bar. This is the 80s. Um, it was all hell fellow well met and it was fine. So you, you, you get very strong and you don't burst into tears and dash to the loo you know it's all good anyway um yes so I was constantly checking facts when I started writing fiction constantly and then I thought 
Oh, hang on a minute. The point is that I'm making this up. <laughs> so what was she doing at Christmas? Of course, it was her birthday. You know, that kind of thing all comes in. And I'm writing a, a book for, for next year. I'm halfway through it now, which is based on history from about 1932 to about 1952. And it's, it's very, uh, it is a true story. But I've highly fictionalized it in terms of the encounters with people and the conversations, because how can we know? Yeah. But the bones are true. Mm. And I've tried to get the the dates right, because it would be ridiculous if you said, and World War Two started in 1953. No, 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 it didn't. <laughs> but we, what about, you've got to get if, it right. Do you worry, Fern, that, if, that somebody who's maybe related to somebody in the book pipes up because like with the stuntman in my book i thought gosh what if you know if someone says hang on a minute you described him as being mm. cross on january the first he was never cross as it turned out he didn't have extended family he didn't have kids i tried to reach out to his great cousins and they you know they i didn't get a reply but do you worry about that uh, I do slightly, but I've drawn the character as an ordinary, well, several of them actually, as ordinary human beings who would react the, the way I think ordinary people would in the situation I put them in. I mean, I, I wrote some dialogue the other night, which really made me laugh. You know, you think, oh, this is great. <laughs> and um, if it makes me laugh and entertains me, and gives me a bit of a shock, I think, oh, I think people would take this. Nothing, nobody's actually slandered, you know. Yeah. yeah. Or, you no, I, what is I, it? If, who I love is um, Agatha Christie. And, and saying that is like saying to a real music fan, you love ABBA. You know, people get really snotty about it. But mm. Agatha, and I remember not getting into Bristol University because they said, what have you been reading? And I said, just a load of Agatha Christie. And they were just, <laughs> they were furious, you know. But but Agatha, bless You'd her. You get in bless her. Oh, yeah. She she wrote so fast that characters would change hair colour <laughs> during yes. her books. I mean, yes. But there, are, there are people who spotted all kinds of stuff in her books, yes. you know. No yeah. one noticed but you, that at the time. happens. Yeah. No, that happens. It does. I mean, the man arrived the other day without a hat on. And when he got up to leave, he put a hat on. This is what I was writing. And I, oh, God, I haven't given him a hat. Because you know, it seems right that he tipped his hat at somebody. And I, I haven't put the blinking hat in. I better do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's simple things. Mm. I call, in movies, they call it continuity, don't they? Yeah. That's what your editor's eyes for, though, isn't it? Your editor will spot yeah, and the, the continuity. Copy, the and the editor. copy editor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. Yeah. Thank um, goodness. <laughs> Talking about Christie, it's always lovely to hear what um, my guests have been reading and enjoying recently. And I just wondered what's been on your to be read or have been read piles. Fern, what, I know that you have a huge pile of books there with you. What have you read and enjoyed recently? Mm. Very recently, um, in the last 12 months anyway, Small Pleasures by Claire, Claire Chambers. Chambers. Yes. Now, this book, I won't go into the whole detail, but I do like a slow book, a slow story mm -hmm. that starts to unfold almost in real time. It unfolds in front of your eyes. Yeah. Um, it, it doesn't have a laugh a minute as an ending. I'll just let people know that because you might not want to read something that doesn't make you go hooray at the end. Uh, but that is, it's a beautiful book, beautifully written, very simply written. And in the same... Uh, feel there's a lovely book uh, called A Single Thread by Tracy Chevalier uh, who wrote obviously Girl with a Pearl mm. Earring A Single Thread and it's a beautiful story again about a single woman living her single life a, a maiden, yeah, virgin and um, how she starts to take up needlework with um, uh, gosh let me just remember Winchester Cathedral to do the kneelers and things, and and on other nights she goes to a ho she goes to hotels, orders sherry, and goes off to bed with anyone who fancies her. So oh, she's, what? She's... I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> I know. What? A sing yeah, a single. Because you described her as a virgin. I'm thinking, right, okay, there's not going to be a lot well, of I, that. I started with maiden, and then I thought, no. Anyway, she's not a virgin by the end, so that's fine. Well, it sounds like. And then, <laughs> no, it's it's brilliant. Fantastic. It's a brilliant book, and. Just recently, I've read A Narrow Door by Joanne Harris, yes. which is a brand new one. Have you read that? Yes, she's uh, on this series of Book Off, actually, talking about ah, it. Mm. So you've talked about, ah, it's a great book. It's a great book about a woman who becomes the head teacher of a, what had been a boys' school. And uh, The Narrow Door is a description of 
how hard it is for women to slip through the doorways of male institutions, really. Yeah. And uh, she she's brilliant and she's very forward thinking and she's hip and all that. But actually, her life is a wreck. And uh, what has gone on in it is very interesting indeed. Yes, it is. It's a great book, that. And on talking of um, getting it, you know, getting things right, research accuracy, I remember Tracy Chevalier telling me about the research she does for her books, which is to the point of having to go and stand exactly where that character would have stood, seeing what they have seen, taking photos, driving the route. I mean, it's unbelievable the amount that she puts into getting because she she wants to, that's what she wants from her writing in her books but and I, she's girl with a pearl earring is that right because yeah. that that's very much the vermeer approach to painting so that that all begins to yeah. make sense yeah. yeah 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 the other one i loved this is a while ago though and forgive me i can't get it is the not the doll's house um oh doll factory i've forgotten no it's set in holland in the oh the miniaturist 16th the miniature. Jesse Well done, oh Joe Haddo. Well done. Back it's of the It's almost net. as if you're a book man. That's amazing. Cool. You don't do well here. <laughs> I get all the egghead ones right, Jeremy, on books. Like. <laughs> yeah, you would. <laughs> Another slow and very evocative story, and you feel it all going on. The young girl in the countryside who mm. gets taken to is, is it Amsterdam? Yes, That's she right. goes to Amsterdam, yeah. doesn't she? Yeah. With her with her new husband, who she's never met. They got married somehow by proxy, and um, there is a perfectly good reason why. Not that he isn't handsome and adorable, but certainly, shall we say, not the marrying kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yes, let's say mm-hmm. that. Uh, one, it's, that's a lovely book and so evocative yeah. of, of the place, I think. Uh, yeah. It reeks of a Vermeer painting. <laughs> it does. And what about you, Jerry? What have you been uh, reading if you found time recently? My no, Do you know, my, my reading has been brilliant since I started cycling in London. So I have an earphone in one ear and oh, I do great, yes. 80 minutes a day, 80 miles a week. And it's transformed my reading completely. Wow. I, I had COVID over Christmas and I thought, right, I'm, now I've been sort of confined to barracks. I'm going to do something I've, I've always wanted to do, which is to try to read and understand Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy by John le Carre. <laughs> so I, I, I read it in book form. I, I, had, I then abandoned it. I then listened to it. I then watched the movie with Gary Oldman and then I went back to the BBC series. I still couldn't understand it, but I mean, it's, it's, it, it is a great classic. You can tell it's, it's really feels like it's real, but yeah. you, the motivations and who's doing what for what reason and it's all in code. But by the end, I think as I got over the COVID, I thought I've just about clocked it. So that was my big triumph of the year. I read a book recently and it's interesting listening to Fern's Choices because I think I need a little bit more gunfire in my books. Um, American Dirt by Janine Cummings, Cummings, which starts with a massive sort of massacre in a house in Mexico from which she emerges, this, this sort of middle-aged mum, with her son and has to escape the country and become, you know, one of the refugees across the American border. Wow, that, that'll be a movie. That'll be a movie. That's incredible. On that score, somebody recommended to me I Am Pilgrim by Terry Hayes. I, I don't know if he'll write a second book because that one is so, so amazingly good. It's like a suicide bomber who they got a catch and he's creating a smallpox outbreak. It's that kind of thing. But it's, it's, it's top end, film, though, I promise Jeremy. you. Is it? Yeah, is it really? Yeah. The, Terry Hayes is a screenwriter and he, ah, yeah. he, wrote the, he wrote the Mad Max movies. Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. I also, I'm going to give a book here which I think is more up Fern Street. It's by a woman called Sofka Zinoviev and it's called Putney. And it was recommended by a friend and it's essentially, it, it starts this blissful scene of her as a young child and her arty parents all have these arty friends. And you know something bad's going to happen. And it, it's a story of an, in a, well, more than inappropriate criminal relationship between an adult male and a, a child, essentially. But it, it grows out of the text so subtly you almost don't notice the grooming. That's what's interesting. Oh, and wow. then as, what's it called? Uh, it's called Putney. And and as the book goes on, she gets older and she then realizes what's happened. And it's 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 amazing. It's an uncomfortable read, but it's it's real. It's really mm. good. 
Yeah, I must yeah. say. Wow. And then yeah, all my I'm books just... on the on the Second World War, obviously, which I haven't mentioned. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you read Hitler. My part in his downfall, the Spike Milligan. Spike Milligan. I did just finish actually Hitler by Ian Kershaw, which is the defining work by I think Ian Kershaw's probably seventy five now. He's a historian, obviously, and he wrote he put the whole thing together. And and, and but the trouble is with. He, Hitler as a person is such a dull. There's nothing there. Mm. It's just ideology, and and you know the only story that and it was a bit Trumpian actually. Funnily enough, is that the only story that came out of the book thinking I'm going to remember that was that when Hitler was in his teens, they started a lottery in Bavaria, and he bought a ticket to it, and he then began this grandiosity of what he was going to do with the winnings when he won, as he inevitably would. And he, he sketched out this mansion he would build with the winnings of this lottery. And then when he didn't win, he then called for the lottery to be shut down. And I thought, that's such a Trump thing, you know. Not that I'm making a full-on comparison, you understand. Um, but it's that thing of the megalomania and the narcissism. narcissism and, and, and also the thing is, as the Second World War goes on, he fires everybody, you know, because ah, it starts yeah. to go badly. You're fired, you're fired, you're fired. And there was a fascinating little aperçu where in about 1943, he fires a general, um, decides not to shoot him, and the general then goes to court and manages to retain his army pension. And I'm thinking, <laughs> how could that, with the whole of Germany melting down, how could that have happened? Gosh. So there's still so many stories. Oh, yeah, one more, I thought. This, you could almost make it. You'd write a book on this, Fern, because this is an amazing thing. Leaving aside the famous story of von Stauffenberg, the, the general who tried to bomb Hitler and nearly t succeeded... There was another guy in 1939, a plasterer called Georg Elser, E-L-S-E-R, who was just didn't like him. He just thought, this guy's bad for my country. And he knew Hitler went to speak at this particular beer hall in Munich. So he spent about a month going down to the basement and building a bomb into the wall that was so big, when it went <laughs> off, it brought the whole building down. The trouble oh. was, Hitler went, arrived early and left 10 minutes before oh. it went off. And had, oh. that, had he been taken out in 1939, we would be in a different world today. Isn't that an amazing thought? Wow. And they caught, of course, they caught him and they put him in a concentration camp and they, they kept him alive thinking he could be used in negotiations when the, world end, when the war ended. But, but, but for, unfortunately for him, when Germany realised they were losing, Hitler in 45, just as the war was going, thought, shoot him. That guy who tried to kill me and they shot him just as the war ended. You're kidding. Yeah, isn't that incredible? And these tiny stories, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very good. And it, it's these these despots don't seem to have much of a personality, do they? Uh, who's, I, I mean, you, who's the, the funniest and most hilarious? I mean, they, they aren't. Putin, mm, Kim Jong-un. look at Trump. No, I think Trump Syria. does. Trump does. I mean, okay, uh, not that kind of despot, but... He think about the inject yourself with disinfectant. You know, think about yeah, all of that stuff. He doesn't think he's being. He doesn't know that's funny. That's <laughs> that's something else. Yeah. You know, he's trying some kind of character, some television presenter who, as he was, you know, he's trying that on a mm. on a on an audience to warm them up. <laughs> yeah, but it's not what he. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Hilarious. Interesting. Oh, all yeah. very hilarious. I'm just actually just right now listening to John Sopel, Unprecedented, which is spelt like president is spelled, which is his diary of the Trump, the final Trump oh, years. That's really, really, really good. Really good. Yeah. Yeah. What a brilliant range of books and recommendations in the last five minutes. That's, <laughs> that's an amazing list. Thank you for those. Yeah. Good. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And it's time now for the book off, which is where each of you is going to tell us about a book you love that you think we should all read. This can be anything. It can be fiction, non-fiction. It can be old, new, poetry, children's books, whatever you want. It's just a book that you think we should all read. Let's find out, first of all, which books are going up against each other. Jeremy, what are you putting forward for us? I'm going to do a last-minute change here. I was going to do a biography of Oscar Wilde that I read that changed my life because it was just so amazing. But listening to Fern talk about her... Was it grandfather who was in the Lancaster Fern? Not father. Uncle. Uncle, sorry. Right, I'm going to pick a book that I think is the best book I've ever read. And it's there. It's called The Last Enemy by wow. Richard Hillary. Oh. Okay. And what about you, Fern? What's going up against The Last Enemy? <laughs> How interesting. You see, you should do, choose the bullets. And this is kind of a bullet one, but it isn't. I have chosen Gone with the Wind. As somebody sent it to, to, to remind me, sent me an email today with a fantastic typo. And she put Gone with the Wine. <laughs> anyway, Gone with the Wind, because, uh, yeah, I'll tell you about that in a minute then. Who's going to go first? Gone with the Wine is, is a book for 2021, I think, isn't it? It's just it's a perfect title. Well, Fern, yeah. would, you, would you like to go first or would you like to see what Jeremy's got and go second? No, I don't mind. I'm going to go for it. I, I also need to ask Jeremy, because we, you've got three minutes if you want them, Fern and Jeremy, but you don't have to use them all. However, if you're still talking at three minutes, I'm either going to... Get the school bell on you, or you're going to be Fine. honked out. Which one would you like, okay. Jeremy? Oof. Oh, I definitely want the bell. So it's three minutes on the clock for you then, Fern, to tell us about Gone with the Wind. Over to you. Well, it is, of course, a sweeping saga about the American Civil War, uh, the South versus the North, and it's all about the uh, abolishment of slavery. That's the backdrop to it all. Uh, it's a very good story about the fighting and the message of the balance between the slaves who were part of a family and had no problem being slaves. They felt they were being looked after and fed. and That was great. Uh, but then there were those who lived in, in terrible poverty, cruelty uh, and filth. And they were living in appalling um, spaces and wanted to be free. So the North wanted them to be free. The South enjoyed having their slaves on their cotton plantations. Um, it's also a tremendous love story. It, we all know about Scarlett O'Hara and Rhett Butler. Scarlett O'Hara is one of the great feminist females in any fiction. Um, and the story, of course, is that Rhett Butler loves her. She loves Ashley Wilkes. Ashley Wilkes loves her, but also loves his wife, Melanie. Uh, so it's all very complicated and in the story it's much bigger than the film much bigger Scarlett is married four times uh, Scarlett also has sex forced upon her by Rhett Butler and she loses a daughter she's also her heart is entirely after Ashley Wilkes who's a drip he should be lovely but actually he's a bit of a drip um, it's dangerous there's sexual assault there's abandonment there's romance, there's thrills, there's the burning backdrop of Atlanta, there's trying to escape to the, to the lands that she grew up in, which are now barren and burnt, and she shoots a man. Well, actually, no, Melanie shoots a man. Um, she has to deliver a baby. She's got no idea how to deliver a baby. It's pure romantic escapism with one of the best heroes, Rhett Butler, in it, and she's a grand heroine and she starts to drink because she can't cope with anything so when Rhett would turn up she'd see him coming to the front door pick up a bottle of perfume and drink the perfume so he wouldn't smell the booze you had you had time I'll, I'll give you a little ring anyway wow fantastic well, friend thank you for that um and My pleasure. so lovely to 
hear about the book, not the film. Um, and we will come back and talk. 1,100 pages. Ele- all 1,100 pages of it, my goodness. Yeah, no, it's it's easy to read, yeah. I will pick up on it in just a moment. You can have a breather and a sip of tea because I'm putting three minutes back on the clock for you, Jeremy, if you want to use them all to tell us about The Last Enemy. Over to you. The Last Enemy is by Richard Hillary. I'm holding it up here and you can see on the cover this this young man in his early 20s wearing an RAF uniform with classic pictures of Spitfires or Lancasters in the background. Now, I I tell you why, when I read this, I I then bought 20 copies to give to friends. I I couldn't believe how good it was. Fern, I'm so excited you haven't read it because I'm going to send you one of these copies. I'm going to post it to you soon. Yeah, and you'll you'll love it because of your your war background. Here's what happened. Richard Hillary was born in 1919, so when the war breaks out, he's 20, and he becomes one of the few. And, And so he's up in the air and he's doing Spitfire missions. But here's the other thing. He's a writer. So he's able to write in the most beautiful way, but also quite prosaic about how you win a dogfight, for example, or what it's like to fly up and Bill's in the other plane, but Bill did not come back. And that's just simply how he gives us the final line on so many of his friends. The amazing thing is it starts with him in the sea, he's being pulled out, he's been blasted, he's terribly badly burnt. He goes into this famous, famous place called, well, it's a hospital in East Grinstead, they called it the Sty, where a plastic surgeon called Archibald McKindo pioneered plastic surgery on airmen, because we'd never had before people basically flying bombs, so their faces were blown off, and he wanted them to be able to get back into society. So East Grinstead was known as the town that didn't stare. Richard Hillary's face was rebuilt. He had no mouth or eyelids. The guy was in such a bad state he wasn't allowed to drive, but he demanded to be able to fly again. He goes back into the air and sadly then crashes and dies in 1942. The book then comes out seven months after his death and everyone goes, oh my God, this guy was a writer. And it's it's so it's 160 pages and it, it, it's, it changed my life. I actually, as a result of reading it, I've just finished writing a novel based sort of around the events. So it really, really inspired me. I'm going to send you a copy. Wow. Thank you. I'll look forward to that. Gosh. That is... uh, (laughs) I wasn't quite expecting that, Jeremy, to be honest. No. Two very different books and yet two absolutely fabulous books. I think, Fern, with Gone With The Wind, you're right. It's big, it's epic, but it's easy to read, isn't it? And that's the key. I think the size of it might put people off, but it's... It's just a joy. Yeah. You can sort of get lost in it. Oh, it's a. It's Is there a, a danger, Fern, with with Gone with the Wind that the film? I haven't seen the film or read the book, and I the the, the, okay. the reference to the film that I heard recently was when. Do you remember when Parasite won the Oscars, and yes. Trump said, "Why do we have to have a South Korean film? When why can't it be Gone with the Wind?" <laughs> to which the answer was, "That was actually made sixty years ago. That's why it can't win." But um, the film is so good. That's people's that experience. <laughs> Whoa, stop. Hang on a minute. That was a brilliant... I thought Trump was in the room. That was brilliant. (laughs) That was very good. It was good. Um, It really was good. Uh, Yes, it was a fantastic um, film, and that's why it got so much. And if you ever go to Atlanta, you can see the cinema where it was first premiered, and you can go into Margaret Mitchell's house and see the desk that she wrote it at. And there's a little thing she wrote going, in a weak moment, I have written a novel... (laughs) Isn't that great? That's amazing. Anyway, a, a small novel. I mean, it's huge, but brilliant. Yeah, they yeah. couldn't possibly put the entire book in a movie. No, and I think, Jeremy, if you if you, if you you want to do it, read the novel, then watch the film, I'd say. Okay, that's great advice. It's very rare for a film to be better than a book. Very rare. It has happened, uh, but it yes. is very rare, yeah. But and the film is still outstanding. Oh, it's amazing, isn't it? It is amazing. Yeah. And the performances are... You need four hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it took them the length of the war to make it. They started in 1939. I think they finished in 45. God, really? Unbelievable. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, Didn't yeah. Know that. Mm. Mm. And I love that you. This book is not only that you bought 20 copies and you're sending it to friends, Jeremy, and and that Fern's going to get one, which is which is great news. Uh, so you've got something out of coming on the podcast. Um, I'll read it. <laughs> but this man, this amazing guy, Richard Hillary of seven months after his death it came out and it's I, I assume the only thing he wrote you know certainly the only thing that was yeah. published yeah well he's trying he's I mean he's having the time of his life that's the first thing he's mm. and and at the time they didn't know how significant the Battle of Britain was so they get through that and and they wouldn't have known they were going to be known as the few and you yeah. think of all our associations with that but I think I think he would regard himself as lucky but what he tries to work out all the time is 
am I fighting for me or am I fighting for everyone? And he can't, you know, although we see it as amazing bravery and he sacrificed his life for his country, for him, he's 22, you know. He's trying to work out, am I just going up there because it's just amazing to do it? But I think, you know, to actually, obviously he's on his own in a Spitfire and he's describing this tactic of rolling behind the the German fighters and trying to get behind the sun and all that, you know, and you just think, I don't, I haven't read anything like this ever before. You know, I didn't even know it existed. I think it was referred to, this is how it happened, right? Classic connections. I had my wisdom tooth out at the East Grinstead hospital. And I said, why is this called the Archibald Mckindo wing? And the guy very oh, kindly right. said, uh, without embarrassing me, said, well, he was a famous surgeon. So I looked him up and I thought, well, this is amazing. And I read a book on Archibald Mckindo and the book said, if you want to find out more, you need to read The Last Enemy. So that's that's how I got to it. So right. that wonderful thing that books give you where it's a connection and a random mm. lateral thought. I, I'm interested to read it. Yeah. yeah. 22. And to be able to write that way. Yeah, yeah, I don't, but I think it's genetic, isn't it, writing? I think some people just, that's, their word, they've got a sort of word-based software. You know, some people, it's music. I wish I had music. I don't have it. I'm amazed when people can sit at the piano. Yeah. Um, but I do relate to the pe- the people who see everything as lines of, of text. I, I can get that. Yeah. I love both of those pictures, and thank you very much for them. Um, I've got to pick one to, to take home with me, because uh, that's the game. And I... Mm. I think I'm going to take the last enemy. I'm, oh, I, I think I, you should. I tell you why. And I chose Fern. it for Fern actually as well because of her war connection. Yes, so there's there that. And also, I well, think bless you. even though Jeremy hasn't read it, I do think Gone with the Wind is known. And I wonder if actually we should be using this platform to take a lesser known title and give it a little bit of prominence. So, and it was a great pitch as they both were, but I think the last enemy is going to take it today. But if you haven't read I will Gone send with the Wind, you a copy as well. Okay. You've got All a copy right. coming yeah, great. too, Joe. Oh, this has worked here. out well for me as well. <laughs> I, I look forward to it. That's oh, your yes. one, that's mine, Fern. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good. Sign them. <laughs> I, I think that's a worthy win. Absolutely. Good. Absolutely. I'm glad we're to say that leaving as friends. And I'm going to I'm no going to read Gone with the Wind now. So on my bike. <laughs> there you go. It. It'll yes. take me a month, yes. a month and a half. It'll take me. Yeah, you should. Yeah, I hope. Yes. <laughs> and The Diver and the Lover by Jeremy Vine is out now. It's published by Coronet. And The Daughters of Cornwall by Fern Britton is also out now, published by HarperCollins. What an absolute pleasure to have you both on the podcast. Thank you so much for your time, for your book recommendations. And uh, look forward to seeing you in person, maybe sometime soon hope so amazing joe Bless thank you, you very thank much you. thank you both. so much thanks jeremy thanks thanks Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.